at the cross in towards Alfonso Davies! Canada's history-making moment delivered by the biggest superstar. A goal the country has been dreaming about for decades finally arrives. You're listening to the Northern Football Podcast with Ben Steiner, Peter Galindo, and Alexander Gongay-Ruzic. Welcome back into the Northern Football Podcast. It's episode 129 of Northern Football with a Gold Cup and Women's World Cup special today. Remember to follow at Northern Football on Twitter, Instagram, threads now, and subscribe and rate the show wherever you get your podcast. Ben Steiner alongside Alex Gongay-Ruzic today. Still no Peter. He's still with the Canadian men's national team as a technical analyst, performance analyst, excuse me. But Alex, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Nice to be back on the show after a very tumultuous Gold Cup stage and, of course, World Cup near. And we finally have a roster drop date, um, you know, for, for, for Canada's quest to go win the 2023 World Cup. So, I mean, hey, I can't complain. Well, it's been very busy times just trying to keep up with uh, everything going on, sprinkling a little bit of CPL and MLS. But uh, we're living the dream out here, aren't we? And uh, before we get into Canadian soccer, a bit of a shift in the social media space this week with threads opening up. Uh, Alex, I know you're on it as AGR on the case. I'm Benny underscore Steins. I didn't quite want to change my Instagram username, but just your initial thoughts on that and the soccer community moving over to uh, to threads from Twitter. Yeah, it's been a bit uh, strange, but you know what? Fair on, uh, I guess, Mark Zuckerberg for capitalizing on the fact that Twitter has been a bit dodgy late. The one of the only apps I've seen that wants to keep people off their app and keep engagement down because uh, for whatever good reason. So it's fascinating to see how everyone's kind of given it a go because obviously Instagram, most people have it. So I'm interested to see how it grows, right? Could be a fun platform. Seems very chill. It's been nice to interact with a few of our listeners actually on there who've uh, made the jump and, you know, been, been chatting on there. So always fun to have a new social platform, especially if we can uh, engage with more of the Canadian soccer community, which is uh, always awesome. I think the interesting thing to me about it is the fact that people who just never gave Twitter a shot because Twitter had this sort of like reputation are now finding out about these like text-based social media. And so I have all these people I follow on Instagram who I've never interacted with on Twitter and they're all just like finding out about Twitter sort of. And it's very weird to, to see them on such an app and I'm quickly unfollowing a lot of them. Oh, that's it. It's just, it's going to be chaotic a bit as uh, things kind of neutralize, say, but uh, hey, you know, you got to start somewhere, right? And it's fascinating to kind of see something grow because uh, Twitter launched, what, in 08? And I didn't get on that till 2012, really. I didn't really properly use it till like 2018. And, you know, even in apps like Instagram, I was a couple years late. So it's funny to see something kind of grow and see the chaos. Everyone, uh, you know, the hunt for engagement has certainly been on a lot, <laughs> a lot of companies. Uh, if you ever had a, a, a good debate question, I think uh, a lot of companies would welcome uh, people sharing it with them because it's been a lot of, what do you think of this? What do you think of that? And fair enough, you want to build up your engagement. That's kind of been funny to, to see. Yeah, some people certainly trying to maybe interact with bigger accounts that and attract some more engagement themselves, which has been kind of funny to watch. But anyways, we'll get into Canadian soccer. Uh, it's been a tumultuous time for the Canadian men's national team as they've gone to the Gold Cup. And while they're undefeated, they finished second in Group D with a 2-2 draw against Guadeloupe, a 0-0 draw against Guatemala. That was a pain to watch. 
all before securing a win against Cuba, winning 4-2 in Houston seat. Meanwhile, the women's national team has made their way down to Australia in preparation for next week's World Cup, and they'll soon take on England in a closed-doors match to test their medal against the European champions. Both teams heavily injured. Some news today as well. Jade Rose not going to be with the Canadian women's national team as she picked up an injury in training. All that said, Sunday is going to be a big day with the men playing the U.S. in the Gold Cup quarterfinals at 4.30 and the women World Cup roster earlier in the day at 1 p.m. Eastern time. Okay, that's all for me talking, but just getting into some of the highlights. Um, the Gold Cup, we'll start there. Initial thoughts on just the, the group stage. Uh, both of us were in Toronto as well uh, for the Guadeloupe game. Um, just initial thoughts on that first game, the Gold Cup back in Toronto, as well as the group stage. Yeah, it's been a bit of a strange Gold Cup, right? It's hard to kind of know how to feel because I think ultimately, if you view it on a very, you know, black and white, very binary terms, right? It's uh, they got the job done in the sense that they advanced to the knockout round in a tournament. You can't ask for much more or much less than that, right? If you want to advance and then uh, see how the cookie crumbles, but you had also advanced as the second place team in the group of life the group that everyone thought it was, was Canada's to win with their eyes closed. That, as a re- result, it opens up a harder quarterfinal matchup against a group winner in the U.S., a team that's favored um, to, to win. Plus, the performances themselves haven't been great. You, you know, we've watched Canada struggle across three games. They've, uh, you know, allowed two goals to Guadeloupe, which, fair enough, Guadeloupe had quality. We kind of spoke about it heading into the tournament that they had some players to watch out for. And one of those, you know, like Cherry Ambrose ends up popping off. So, you know, if you listen to the Northern Football Podcast uh, before the Gold Cup, you wouldn't have been surprised by that. But still, it's a game Canada should have won at the very least. They were up 2-1 in the 90th minute at home. You should win those games. Then even Guatemala was nil-nil, but it just felt like a loss with how, you know, how close Guatemala felt to winning and how far Canada felt from that. And even in Cuba, you win 4-2, right? Like, Cuba scored two goals. Uh, Canada hasn't done that, allowed two goals against Cuba since like the 80s or the 70s, right? Like that alone feels like a bit of a loss, even if they scored a bit of uh, some goals and got some some confidence up. So overall, based on the performances, based on the fact they finished second, it's hard to say this Gold Cup has been a success really other than the fact that they made it out their group, which was the bare minimum given the the talent level of this team and uh, the group they had. I think it's the bare minimum of the team to make it out of the group, but this Gold Cup is also proving to find a few players that can maybe crack into that like first-choice Canadian team, and I think we found that through the performances of Ali Ahmed. He's shone brightly in his first Canadian camp, and that's been a positive to see. I was hoping that we'd see more specifically in goal, because Borean started those first two games. Dane Sinclair is thrown into a third game without much game action. He hasn't been in fantastic form for Minnesota United, let four goals in against uh, Montreal a few weeks back. And so he comes in and I think we can all say it was a poor game that he played against Cuba. He surrenders a penalty, unable to stop both. He got a hand on one of them. Um, He didn't have many opportunities, but I think that overall it was a pretty poor game for his third Canadian cap. And really other than Ali Ahmed, there's not really been a player that's forced himself into that conversation. Maybe you could say Jane Nelson with his showing in that third game, but success is on a barometer for this Canadian team at the gold cup, because sure they make it out of the group and they have a chance against the U S it's two groups of heavily MLS players. Right. Um, But did they find a few of those players that can step into that first squad? I think they have. So it might not be a success on the pitch, but it might also be a little bit of a success. I'd say. 
Yeah, but I think ultimately you can see the potential, right? And I think, but it's also frustrating because this was a chance to see tangible. I think really the only player that you can say is tangibly shown across three games that can make that step up is Ali Ahmed. I think he's been the one where he's been consistent, two different positions. You've seen 270 minutes almost. Uh, obviously, he got subbed off in the you know, in one of those games, but, you know, he's all close to 270 minutes of, of, of CV and I've liked what I've saw and we're not surprised. We've been watching Ali Ahmed uh, very closely here since Whitecaps two days. And, you know, we've been calling for, for this for a while now. So that's been great to see. Canada needs more midfielders and you're having a, a guy who can play all over the pitch never hurts from a national team perspective. But yeah, really the frustrating thing is that other than that, it's just been a lot of potential like Moisa Bombido looked fantastic for 45 minutes against Guatemala at right center back, was winning his duels, getting stuck in, and then gets thrust back in, in, into midfield. And we've only really seen him in midfield otherwise, and it's been frustrating because, okay, yeah, you want to try him out as a midfielder. That's going to be a project that takes a year, two years, three years. you got a taste of what it looks like. Okay, fine, you know, he looks good on the ball, and I see the potential there, but that's not going to be a process that happens overnight. That's going to require practice at the club level, you know, practice at more camps. Uh, it would be nice to see a bit more of him at that right center back position because, look, the, you, you need all sorts of center back options and you don't have many six foot three, uh, good on the ball, athletic, quick center back profiles hanging around playing in a league like MLS, like you do Bombito, where, yeah, I mean, Canada does need number sixes. So I don't hate them looking at Bombito, but also you have Victor Latouri. And why wasn't he given more of a look there? He looked good on the ball in his 15 minutes against Cuba. He's good on the ball. We've seen at the club level for, for Ross County and Cavalry. Why didn't we see more of him? And he's another one of those players where we saw the potential for 15 minutes. You're like, ooh, I wish I had 100, 150 minutes of sample size to look at heck ditto with Dane Sinclair you only see him for 90 minutes and I find it hard to really blame Dane Sinclair for that performance because he doesn't play in the first two games you kind of get thrust in against Cuba and it's a Cuba opponent where you really don't have much to do all game and the first thing you do is you're facing a three-on-two counterattack, and you kind of you know want to show something you almost get a bit too aggressive and then from that point on that mistakes in the back of your mind that that just whole uh, thing right so it's one of those where for St. Clair if he'd gotten more reps throughout the tournament maybe against Guadalupe he got a chance to quickly find his feet make some of those saves against Cuba he would have been sharp and ready to, to to go and hey hopefully against the U.S. this Cuba game was kind of that game for him so really a lot of the players other than Ali Ahmed's were sitting here talking about what five ten minutes could mean for them long term but I'm not sitting here being like I have a better tangible idea of, of what they can bring but just that they look like potential contributors and uh, that's a bit frustrating because I think heading into this tournament we could have told you that they're potential contributors already I wanted to see a bit more of a sample size and see that they can make that step up and uh, hopefully this U.S. game and who knows maybe they win it and they get a few more games and then uh, and if they'll, they'll change we'll be able to change our tune but as of now if, if your goal was to find some young players who could play for uh, the, the first team long term, it feels like Canada has left a, li a little bit on the table in that regard. I, I would have to agree. I think there were some players that I was expecting a bit more from. I'm thinking sort of a, a Jacob Schaffelberg. There were a lot of expectations of him to sort of establish himself at this tournament. And he had moments against Guatemala, I thought. He had a fantastic chance, what, in the 70th minute or so? But he, he hasn't really solidified himself as a, a first choice option because the wingers area is so crowded for Canada and you have world-class players playing in those areas as well. So you're not going to crack that very easily, whereas Ali Ahmed can play all over the pitch. But one question that I do have coming out of the group stage is 
when you're looking at these new center backs that Canada has, you have Moise Bombito, who's looked good in that in MLS. Then you have Zach McGraw as well, who has certainly looked a little bit iffy, even though he's played well with Portland. Yeah, it's uh, it's going to be interesting to see what they, they go with. Because, I mean, McGraw, McGraw's been another interesting one because, you know, you were in, intrigued just to see what he could do. And it feels like he's also been thrust in a bit of an unfamiliar role, playing on the outside of a back three where there's been a lot of 1v1, a lot of running, a lot of turning. And, you know, as we've seen, those maybe aren't his strengths of the game. He seems someone that, you know, for Portland we've seen it, and it's something where 10 minutes for Canada, he wants to hold down the middle of a back three be a, a, an orchestrator so I think no doubt for for this U.S. game we're going to see Stephen Vittoria we're going to see Kamal Miller I think that feels safe to say if Vittoria was rested on a yellow card to save him for a U.S. game uh, you know Kamal Miller I feel like as well would likely start maybe Scott Kennedy uh, slots in as well and it's going to be curious to see who they go at the outside of the back three because if I were to ask what do I think John Herdman's going to do probably McGraw because that's what he's done and you know is that it's something is that a role that suits him not particularly I'd love to see Bombito there. He, he looked quick. He looked capable. You're going up against a U.S. team that has some very good uh, wingers. Uh, you know, you're going to be going up against, uh, you know, like Cade Cowell, for example, is a menace to deal with. You know, guys like Georgi Mihailovic who aren't true wingers, but, you know, can cause problems. Ale- or Christian Roldan, et cetera, et cetera. Jordan Morris. Like, there's some tough 1v1 assignments. I'd love to see Bombito get a chance to show off his speed and profile. So I'll be interested to see. And as well, that game in Toronto was intriguing. There weren't many people there, just over 15,000. But you and I got to the stadium fairly early, and they had full-on fanfare about the game. And they had people trying to sing, like, Stand By Me and various other things half an hour before the game, and nobody was there. It it felt like a really weird sporting experience in Toronto. Um, I don't know exactly what it felt like, but I was sitting next to Charlie O'Connor-Clark of KenPL.ca, and we were just like looking at each other, laughing a lot of the time at a lot of the game presentation and just the experience of that game in a way. Yeah, very, very strange uh, environment. I mean, half empty crowd too. And then the Gold Cup branding was everywhere. Like even when Canada plays normally, like you don't see that much branding. Like the, the TV cameras were having a blast. There's like four hosts too, constantly going in the crowd and asking questions and getting people to try to hype it up. Uh, Quite the event, right? And it's it's a shame. Like, imagine what a, a whole Gold Cup could look like exclusively in Canada. Something might we ever know what that's like? Probably not. But uh, <laughs> maybe one day, right? Maybe one day we can get a tournament here just uh, like that for for to see. Well, I mean, when you're talking about Canada potentially hosting the Gold Cup in some fan fantasy future, but like you look at that second game Canada played against Guatemala, and it's packed full of Guatemalans in Houston. Uh, I don't think you're getting that in like Calgary. It, it I don't think Edmonton. Well, depends. Maybe Toronto. Ticket, Toronto, ticket sure. Prices but... though. Ticket prices are enormous. I'm sure if you brought a tournament, you know, put prices at, at a good, reasonable thing, like people would show up. It's soccer. It's cool. It's international. It's niche. Okay, you might struggle to sell like I don't know Saint Kitts and Nevis and Trinidad and Tobago on a Thursday night in Calgary, but like. I still think if it was 10, 15 bucks, people would give it a go and it would be intrigued. And especially for Canada Cross, I think really the sad thing was the ticket prices because I feel like it could have been an even better atmosphere for, for Canada had they been able to to fill it a bit more. I think what the announced attendance was about 15,000, if I'm not mistaken, is what I saw you tweet out. So like, could have been way better. Could have been. And 
when you're talking about a potential atmosphere in Toronto, the Canadian women are going to be playing their Olympic qualifying second leg against Jamaica, and those tickets are $15, maybe $20 after Ticketmaster fees or, or even more. But that has the potential to be a great atmosphere, although we'll get into the women's national team a bit later. Well, exactly. That's uh, that seems like the the right way to go about it. Price them a little more affordable. And I bet with the time, that's a couple months to sell tickets, garner up interest, must win game. This, this could fill up the stadium, right? This could be eerily similar to Canada versus Jamaica for a spot in something on the line. We've seen that that script before at BMO, um, so that would be nice. And I think if they do sell this out and do well, it'd be proof that yeah, you, you, you got to keep it affordable to to get some fans in. I, I think having something significant on the line is also going to really help because Canada versus Guadeloupe in the Gold Cup is always going to be a challenge, uh, regardless of the ticket prices that you're going for. Um, but when you're talking Olympics with the gold medal group or you're talking first world cup, it's intriguing and people want to be there for, for those moments. Uh, but sticking on the men's national team, we'll get to the women's national team in a little bit. Milan Borjan leaves the camp after two games. Is this it for him? I know there's been a lot of speculation, a few articles written about this being the last dance for Boyan, or does he still have a place in this men's national team? I think he's going to still have a, a place in the national team, but I, I, I think it's something where I think it's time to kind of, again, get that next generation to, to come. Is it Max Crepo when he's fully healthy? Is it Dane Sinclair? Is it Tom McGill? Is it Jonathan Sirwa? No matter who it is, I think it's something. It's time where you do got to start breeding that competition just because again these goalkeepers are, have you know good ceilings right like the it's something where you know Borean has been the, the guy for so long and um he's been very you know good for Canada across the years he's been loyal he's he rarely misses a call up whenever possible so it's something where I don't want to say I don't like don't discard Borean completely like keep him around uh, you know, his leadership will be immense. But how I'd want to see that, I just want to see a bit more of an open competition. Because I feel like that's kind of what's been lacking over the last few years is that it's kind of been Borean's job. And really the only time someone like Crepo, for example, has gotten an, a chance is when Borean's been not around. And I get that Borean's been the guy and he kind of deserved that for the last cycle. But I think now it's clear that the competition has to be opened up. Because I think it's as early as 2019 where you kind of felt, ooh, St. Clair's, or, or not, sorry, Crepo was very close to Borean. But okay, boy, I was playing in the Champions League at the time. But then in 2021, you're like, oh, okay, like it is very close. And you see it in practice. Crepo gets a chance for Canada and looks great. And you're like, okay, it is very close. So with as close it is it as it is, at the very least, you should open it up, right? Like at least see if okay, if these guys get a chance and they flounder, okay, boy, ends there and you, you you turn back to him. But I think again at this stage, with planning for the future, you have to look at these guys because especially someone like Saint Clair at his age. That's someone where that, that could be your national team keeper for the next five to ten years. Uh, Crepo is ditto, right? That could be your keeper for the next five to ten years. And with all these youngsters coming up like a Sirwa, that could create an open competition for the next five to ten years where these guys are constantly battling and pushing to, to be the number one. And I just think, uh, especially at the goalkeeper position, if you can strike that balance because you want consistency, it's a national team level. Uh, you, you, the consistency does help because you're not training as much together, but it would be nice to see if you could uh, open up the doors a bit because it feels like it's been a bit of a closed competition. And a question from Blair Donnelly. Thoughts on Borean leaving camp? Had he not been injured, would he have played that third match? And as a leader on this team, I find it strange he couldn't stay and mentor slash support the goalkeepers in advance of the final match. As an outsider, it's not a great look. Is there more to this? I know we've already looked at the injury. I can't imagine that there is. I mean, for the most part, Borean's Usually, like we mentioned, been one to accept the call. He's been one to 
to, to be there. But I guess it's something where, look, it, especially if the knock comes up and he's unable to play, he obviously had his club future to go secure, right? He immediately went and, and officialized his loan with, with Slovan Bratislava. You know, you may as well go get rehab with, with them. They're in a club environment. You're going to be playing with them. You can go meet your, your coaches and whatnot. I get that it's something where, like, of course, it doesn't look great that you're captain for, for you know, first two games. He leaves and he immediately leaves camp. But, again, it's something where I think based on what we've seen from Boyan in the commitment department, I'm not sitting there being like, oh, this is a red flag. It's just one of those where you get an opportunity to, to, to maybe sort out your club situation. Again, those things are crucially important. Like, you want to, you know, have loyalty to, to the national team at, like, how would I say you want ultimate loyalty, right? Like stick around, have him coaching the guys, but also like, as we know, like club versus country is a tough balance and you don't want to give a little too much to country. Cause next, you know, you lose your spot at club or you risk your spot at club. And all of a sudden you're affecting your, your ability to make the national team and perform. And, you know, even little things like, yeah, you know, that's, that's, that's what's paying the bills uh, for them, so to speak. So look, I think it's something where uh, I, I, you know, if he's injured and he wants to go get his rehab, it makes sense. I, I, I just feel like maybe that yeah, could have been a bit more clearly communicated, but it wasn't something that caught me by surprise or caught me off guard. Yeah, certainly the national team isn't paying the bills with the way things are going. <laughs> Good thing you picked up on that. <laughs> and from uh, Mayan Zilberstein, three questions from Mayan. Uh, first, do you agree with Herdman at apparently the Rapids and the decision to play Bombido as a six when we desperately need a replacement for Vittoria? Personally, I don't. He's looked lost as a six. Uh, he's looked good with the Colorado Rapids when he's playing center back. As you said, he looked good in his right center back role uh, against Cuba. So I, just, I don't totally get it. I get the need for a six, but as we've pretty much all said, um, there's a need for center backs as well. Fast ball playing tall center backs. It's a profile that you're not seeing much of. Yeah. And I just, I don't get why they've gone so heavy with it again when Latoury's there because Victor Latoury is a number six. He's young. He's good profile, good on the ball. Plus he's familiar with the position. So he's, you know, more comfortable defensively. So I don't get why Latoury hasn't got more of a lick. Look, if you need a number six, because that's the number six we've been calling for as early as October. We're saying, look, this is someone that, Long-term, Canada needs a number six. Look at this guy. He's in your camp. Why not have a look at him? So that's been the bigger surprise for me because I think it's something if Latoury isn't there, fine, okay. Really, things are, are dire. You have no options. You're trying it out. But it's the biggest thing has been that Latoury is already there. So it's like it frees you up to play Bombito a bit further back, and especially that McGraw has not looked comfortable at right center back. If McGraw looked comfortable at right center back, again, you'd almost be like, okay, like the back three is relatively sorted you can get away with trying Bombito higher up the pitch, but also that right center back role, like long-term as well. Like Falster Johnson's going to keep playing as a right back or, you know, we saw last year at Montreal, he could play as a right wing back and Bombito brings a profile. Like, yeah, it would make sense to, to, to have a guy like him there long-term at right center back or potentially even in a back four. So yeah, the Bombito one, again, it isn't so much the decision to play him as a number six. Fine. You went for it in the opening game. I actually didn't hate the decision because sometimes you need to look at players, but I think, I saw everything I needed to know about it. Like, like we mentioned, it's a long-term thing. Revisit this in a year or in a few months. And, and the fact that it's kind of been happening over and over, and it's only really been, you know, hurting Bombito. Like he was okay in the first game as a six. And then uh, the second game, he struggled a bit. And then the third game, he really struggled. Like it shows that it's going to take time. So why throw him to the wolves like this when A, he's comfortable at right center back and B, Canada could use right center back. So the right center back position is something where, again, yeah, like they've been playing a fullback there for for the last two years. A a natural right center back would not hurt. 
And Mayan's second question, and we've touched on it briefly already, are there any players that have proven themselves to be potential regulars within that that first-team environment? Ali, Ahmed, and anyone else? Yeah, I'd say Ahmed and, like, maybe Bombito if he keeps it up for club. Because I think, again, I want to see more of him at right center back. Um, but, yeah, really, other than that, like, I guess most of these guys are kind of already embedded in, right? Like a guy like St. Clair already gets calls, uh, et cetera. So I just, maybe this camp is kind of giving me a, a, a taste of wanting to see what Bombito could look like in that, that first team environment. Cause you can see the potential uh, ditto with Ahmed, um, you know, Liam Miller as well continues to, to show that he can be a, you know, a valuable depth piece. So maybe a bit more of a, of Liam Miller, um, some other names as well. I think Jacob Schaffelberg is, I don't know. I just like the the energy and the speed and, you know, what he can bring and his versatility as well. So I'd, I'd throw Schaffelberg in, in, into that mix. So there's a few that I, uh, that I wouldn't mind seeing, but I think the really the ones who've genuinely locked down a potential spot in the, the first team, it would be an Ahmed. And then maybe someone who'd have a chance would be a Bombito and the rest would be more like, you know, you'd look at it. But And the third and final question from Mayan. Uh, what do you make of Herdman hardly using Victor Leturier? Is it simply him relying on veterans or is something else going on? And is it something about players coming through the CPL that you think he has an issue with? Limited minutes for Dom Zator, basically no minutes for Victor Leturier. Could it, there be something there uh, or is that not something that can be looked into really? I would hope not, because <laughs> if there is, that would be a, a huge worry, right? Because, I mean, obviously here in the U.S., the whole MLS, like, you know, Greg Berhalter is an old MLS coach. He only plays – he loves his MLS guys. And, I mean, it is a bit overblown because I think, again, at your national team, you kind of have to look sometimes at, at profiles. But, it, you know, it, it's just something where you'd like to see a bit more. It's, it's something where it is genuinely puzzling because, again, you spend this time after your first press conference, but, like, we need a number six. And we're like, you have Victor Latoury. <laughs> right? Like it's something where, uh, you know, at least a guy like Zator, it's, it's a bit crowded back there at the back. Like uh, the Zator one, I'd want to see more of him, but you can almost understand that, okay, they've tried McGraw out there. Uh, you know, Bombito can also play out there. Like he's battling a bit to get in, whereas like Latoury, there's a clear need. Liam Fraser struggled a bit in that second game. Bombito didn't look comfortable. You're kind of thinking like, why not start Latoury uh, at the six? So it is something where, I'd be very surprised to 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 know why maybe Latoury hasn't seen the field as well uh, as much. Of course, we have to remember there's always things we're, we're not considering, like is it as much training habits or just training level or just adapting to the speed. I mean, sometimes for some players it takes a while, and then when they get it, they get it, and that next you know, like he, he's he's in, and that maybe could be something with with Latoury where. Uh, you know, he's just continuing that process of, of, of figuring it out. But I'm just surprised that we haven't seen a bit more of him in games because um, sometimes as well, that can be a bit of a confidence boost for a player, right? Get those 20, 30 minutes, show that you can belong, and all of a sudden it, it all clicks. So, um, it, you know, hopefully it's not a, a CPL conspiracy, but I suppose, uh, uh, you know, just again, play play, your, play the, the players that you, you need at, at positions of need, and Latoury is that. And from Binatch 2, Yusuf Borian and Cavallini, are they really the betrayal for a potential Copa America and the next World Cup? With limited games for Canada in the near future, it makes sense to try new faces, especially the last three games versus very mediocre competition. And then thoughts on Bombito and McGraw, which we've already touched on. Yeah, I think, uh, well, you, you heard our, our, our thoughts on uh, Bombito and McGraw, so we'll uh, defer to the, the earlier section. But yeah, the ca- the, the Borean one was certainly interesting. We kind of talked about it at the beginning. I, uh, again, it was like we said, 
my biggest thought on this is just we know what they are at this stage, right? Like we know what Milan Boren and Lucas Cavallini can bring. And I, that's not a bad thing. Like I, what I like about Lucas Cavallini, and it was like against the U.S. in the final, I was able to sit there and be like, oh, Canada needs Lucas Cavallini right now. They needed a bit of chaos. They need a bit of energy. And you know that about Lucas Cavallini. Whereas a lot of these young players, we don't know what they can be. Like maybe some of them, their ceiling is a super sub. Maybe some of them, their ceiling is a first team star. The thing is, we won't really know that until we see more of them. And I think it's just been frustrating that we've seen so much of these guys like Cavalini. Like, I don't mind seeing Cavalini because it's good to have a bit of leadership. It's good to have a bit of a veteran. But it's just, uh, you know, the, the the big frustration with the veterans overall is that we've seen so much of them when we know what they can do. And if anything, for the group stages, that's what it should have been. You had an easier group. You had teams you should win. Your veterans were the ones struggling in the first two games, right? Like, it's something where the vets... If anything, in a gold cup, you'd want them in this U.S. game now, right? Where it's like, okay, it's the U.S., it's a must-win game. You, you're probably going to sit a bit deeper. Okay, it'd be great to look. Okay, you know what Cavallini will do if you to lead the line. You know what Vittoria is going to do for you there. But it would have just been nice and throughout the group stages to get more of a, a look at some of these guys because now you're looking at a potential U.S. roster and of the new guys. You're pretty much like Ali Ahmed's the one I could slot in confidentially. The rest, we haven't seen enough from some of these youngsters to say, Ooh, they could start comfortably against the U.S. and, and we know they're they're to that level, and it's just uh, that feels like a bit of a missed opportunity. And from on the rise FC, should Ali Ahmed be a future midfielder next to Ishmael Kone and Stefan Stakio, and can Ahmed earn a big move after this MLS season? Why was he at left back when his dribbling and distribution alternate has been phenomenal phenomenal in midfield? Left back is his generally regular position. It's where he broke into to MLS and was playing a lot with Whitecaps too. Um, I feel like a big move from MLS might be too soon for him. Um, and I don't necessarily see him playing in midfield alongside Kone in the stock. That's my short end of the stick. Interesting. I mean, he's naturally a midfielder. I actually, I found that fascinating uh, in the scrum after the game. I asked him and he you said, tell I us that. Yeah. Cause I was like surprised. Yeah, because for Whitecaps, he actually came in as a winger. Because I think what happened is he grew up as a midfielder. He went to Europe in TFC for trials, played as a winger because of his speed, but uh, and then came to Whitecaps, played as a winger. They turned him into a fullback, uh, and he only went into midfielder because of necessity. So because of that, I do find that gives him a bit more of a ceiling that he's looked so comfortable. It's his natural position. He brings you a bit of a destabilizing profile that you don't really have much of. So honestly, I'd want to give him a try beside... Kone Ustakio, because I've kind of said this since the World Cup. I think ultimately, given what we know about Ustakio and Kone, we want to see them as eights for Canada. Like Ustakio does such a good job of it for Porto. Kone as well. We've seen it for Watford. We've seen it in Montreal. He can be such a good box-to-box eight. So to free them up, you want a number six. That's why we've been saying a number six. But as we also know, Stefan Ustakio has been a very good number six for, for, for Canada over the last two years. He can play that deep-lying playmaker role, you know, playing that sort of provider and if Ali if, if Canada doesn't find a, a number six that could push him up well it makes sense to have Ustakio underneath as a six along two eights and based on what we've seen I feel like Ahmed and Kone could be destabilizing could be you know fun to watch in terms of ball progression give Canada guys who can dribble guys who can pass give guys who can you know stretch their field guys who are fit so I want to see it tried out just to see uh, what what it looks like because I think it's something where if you're Canada, you have to look for that third midfielder besides Kone and Ustakio. We've said that. But, you know, given how flexible Ustakio is, 
you know, you, you're able to experiment with a few different profiles. And if Ahmed's the best option available, and, and he is the best option available based on what we've seen tangibly so far, I'd say give it a, uh, give it a go. As for the, the MLS uh, move question, I wouldn't be surprised if, it, if within the next year we see interest just because it's something where, yeah, it could be a bit soon, but also I think players of uh, that rise like him typically will grab attention because really the only few players who've kind of had a rise similar over the last few years have pretty much been what, like Kone and, and Buchanan. We've kind of seen that when they had a rise like that, it, it, it accelerates quickly, right? A lot of these guys who you want to maybe see make a move and haven't, they've also kind of been building for a while. I think there's something to be said about Ahmed's rise where he was literally like had three first team appearances to his name with the Whitecaps heading into this season. And now he's here and you're looking at him as a potential first team national uh, team player, a, a Whitecaps must starter. Like, I think it's something where if he keeps on this trajectory, I could see next summer as a potential a move for him where he finishes out this season, continues to progress, has a red hot start to next season. And then, you know, maybe he gets a potential move around a, a, a Copa America, especially if he's in Canada squad by then and ends up uh, making a bit of noise there. So something where, of course, it's a bit soon to be saying, oh, I think Ahmed's going to move next week. No, I don't think that, that that'll happen. But it's definitely something where uh, keep an eye on the next 12 months, especially this trajectory he's on that, that he's inkling for a move. Yeah, wouldn't be surprised to see him move eventually. I just don't feel like it's going to be this summer or even in the offseason, to be fair. Uh, but getting to the question from Jordan SC, if Canada gets no games within the next two windows, is not having a decent team for this Gold Cup an opportunity lost? I don't necessarily think so. I think it it was an opportunity that Canada needed to take to look at some other players. They went all out in the Nations League. They had some competitive games there. Um and they tried to win them. They did a poor job of trying to, to win that final. Um, and we'll see if they can get up for a U.S. game with a different group, a different group on both sides. Um, but yeah, I don't think it's necessarily an opportunity lost. It would have been great, but it's not necessarily an opportunity lost, I'd say. Yeah, and I mean, of course, if Canada doesn't have any friendlies, like that's going to be a ginormous loss. Like that doesn't need explaining, right? Like if Canada doesn't play in the next two windows, that's, you know, asinine, but... I think, again, even if, if Canada, assuming they play in those next windows, yeah, I don't think this was an opportunity uh, loss. I think it's something where, uh, for, for the nature of the question, the bigger, like, the, you know, the, the, the Gold Cup itself is kind of in isolation. It's something where if Canada isn't playing in the September and October windows, there's a bigger problem that goes far beyond squad selection, far beyond, you know, playing young players, et cetera, et cetera. And from Johnny Lower, heard the reason that, Schwanier was left off was because Herdman wanted to bring in players with a higher ceiling. Do you think it's an issue that he sees it as Ahmed or Bambito when it should have been Azorio or Watherspoon? In my opinion, with turnover, Schwanier is a better player for this cycle. Yeah, I mean, it would have been great to, to, to see Mathieu Schwanier get an opportunity to, to play for Canix. He certainly has deserved it given uh, his form and I get it, something where you do want to look at some of these players who've kind of come out of nowhere and have those ceilings like an Ahmed uh, or Bombito, but also, you know, guys like Schwanier as well. The credit has to be given for especially his developmental path and to where he is now and the level he's been playing at. So uh, it is a bit, you know, wild that he didn't get any sort of call. Of course, now we know that when Ustakia was ruled out, um, John Herman did call Schwanier. Turns out he was injured. He wasn't able to actually come. Uh, so there was a chance where he came in, but I agree that he should have been called in right away because it's something where 
you know, his form has been undeniable. And I think when you're uh, the national team, if you're, if a player has been undeniable, has been uh, the playing at the level he has, he deserves a look. So, uh, I mean, I, I get why to look at Bombito and Amin. I think it's been a good decision based on what we've seen to look at those two. But I do agree that Schwanier should have potentially maybe had a look, uh, especially over some other guys who we haven't really seen play in, in the midfield uh, as much. And from Jordan Essie as well, is this the most disappointing Canada side we've seen during Herdman's tenure? They lost to Haiti during his tenure with a side similar to this. So I don't know whether it's been the worst, but it could be up there. It seems like he's overthinking a lot of decisions, and he's been doing that kind of since the Croatia game of the World Cup. Yeah, just it, 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 I would say, like, yeah, it is disappointing. And I think the biggest disappointment is that just something feels off, right? Like, it just feels like something feels off across the board. Tactically, they're not... They haven't been as solid just, you know, performance wise. Some of these players haven't been stepping up to the sort of levels we've been accustomed to because um, really like the results. This isn't the worst results 10 like he's run he's had in, in, in Canada or like I was surprised to see. I was like, oh, actually, like for the most part, like this isn't the worst run of results like that 2019 Gold Cup where you lose to Mexico, you lose to Haiti. Uh, you know, and then in the fall they lost to the U.S. Like there's been some runs where they're losing. They're not losing right now. But it, I agree that it does feel disappointing, especially in what we've seen. Like what we've seen before was win or lose was a confident Canada. The Canada where players are playing to above their level. They're, you know, yeah, you might not agree with the tactics, but there's a tactical coherence and identity. And I feel like the fact that those three things kind of haven't been there has made this feel disappointing that in the sense that it's made a lot of these draws feel like losses and, and wins feel like draws. And, you know, for, for, for Canada, just it, it feels like they need uh, to get a bit of that spark, a bit of that shine, that that, that back. That, that, so I, I would agree in that sense. It does seem that they still have that confidence in some ways. And notably, I think Herdman still has that confidence because you see him after the Guatemala game. He's all smiles. He's still got his regular smirk on uh, because he's trying to carry that confidence and he's trying to be that, that leading edge for Canada. Um, even with a group that doesn't necessarily have confidence, a group that probably knows they're not playing up to the potential and the level they should be playing at. But Herdman is still carrying that confidence. And I think a lot of that, the whole brotherhood thing, the confidence, the swagger that Canada had for a while, that was because of Herdman. But it seems like that is almost landing a little bit off now. Yeah, well, that's it. It's like how you use that confidence, how you use that brashness. It's almost, again, the fine line with confidence. You don't, you almost don't want an overconfidence. And um, not saying there was an overconfidence against Guatemala or, or Guadeloupe, but again, that's a, that's something where a confident Canada team takes care of business in those results. And it uh, feels like uh, they have confidence, but it's almost like uh, they just got to find a way to nurture and and, and, and get the, the, the most out of it. And from Chris Fagan, yeah, why so negative? Wins and losses, this is how you build depth by playing younger players and tactics, etc. Let's enjoy this ride. It's miles better than what it was before Fonzie in this generation. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's fair, right? I think that's something where sometimes you have to mention, like, again, the results aren't terrible right now. They got out their group. They aren't losing games. But I think also on the flip side, I think a lot of what we've seen is Look, this is a good candidate team now. This is one as well. You use the soccer nation, right? Like you want your to be a soccer nation. It's something where when your team's not doing as well, like it feels negative. Like it doesn't feel right. You want the team to do better. You want to push the the the, the team to do better. So uh, I think it's something where, yeah, maybe is it as 
are this you know the, the stars falling down etc no like the, everything is still you know uh, it, it's not terrible right now but it is something where uh, if for Canada wanted to be a top team this is a, a stretch where yeah top teams find a way to get out of stretches like this and, and put them behind them and um, you want if you want Canada to be a top team this is, this is something where you want them to be a bit better than they, they have and that's just the reality that becomes of wanting to be the kings of CONCACAF if you want to be the kings of CONCACAF anytime that you're uh, you know not living up to, to that expectation it's felt it, you know so so yeah of course it's not 2012 but also again this is the 2023 Canadian men's national team and uh, that's kind of the expectation and uh, that comes with it. And from Jordan SC, looking at this Guatemala team, is this a story that we should mention that could be a new standard that other CONCACAF teams aspire to emulate? Yeah, it's a, it's a great story. And I think it's one of those where um, this, that's what this Gold Cup's all about. It's about these these stories. And that's been a bit of an underrated theme ever since they've gone up to 16 teams. We've seen more of these stories, right? Like we've seen... Like the Guatemala ones fascinating. They're literally banned from comp- competing for a few years due to issues with their federation. Now they come back, they hit a bit of a reset and they win a tough group with, with Canada, you know, that you just see the fans, what it meant to them at like the packed the Houston, they packed it in New Jersey. Yeah. Maybe some of their behavior was a bit much throwing, uh, throwing things at players and they'll, they'll have to work on that. But I mean, the, the atmosphere itself was great. Like, yeah, it's these stories and shows that, you know, outside the big three in CONCACAF, there's a lot of great stories with with teams that have phenomenal, incredible fan support. You know, they 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 come in numbers and they 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 play. They really, you can tell what it means for them to represent their countries. And I think the fact that we get to amplify more of these stories is is great, right? Like you see what it means for Panama to be in a Gold Cup, for the Guatemala, um, heck, some of these teams that didn't even make it out the the knockout uh, rounds, but the just the the passion and uh, yeah, it should be celebrated. They have the passion like Maple Leafs fans. I know a lot of people were missing my Maple Leafs drops on this podcast. Alex is waving his arm at me. Uh, but a uh, question from Andy. What happened with Luka Koliosho and where's all the young European talent from academies? Only CPL guys are showing up. Not per se bad, but we need help. Koliosho did play for the Italy U19s. So he does have to file a one-time switch to switch to Canada now. Uh, if he wanted to represent Canada, he didn't have a good experience. I don't think in that first camp when it was supposed to be a match against Iran and then it was supposed to be a match against Panama and there was none back last year. It's going to be tough to land these guys, but there's also not necessarily guys who are completely lighting things up. Coliosho has shown well in La Liga, but when you're looking at a guy like Jesse Costa, for example, he's still not broken into the first team at sporting. So like there's, there's things to, to look at in, in that sense where you're not necessarily looking at these guys from academies who are better than the CPL guys coming up because at this point, they're not necessarily breaking into those first team tier one environments. Well, it's the catch 22 we've seen with dual nationals. A lot of these dual nationals, when everyone healthy is healthy, you know, they're, they're not necessarily slotting in to start right away. Heck, some of them might be in a battle to make the squad. So for Canada, they're not able to sit there and be like, look, we can guarantee you minutes, right? Like Daniel Jebison, like you'd keep coming and be what? Like the, the fifth striker on the depth chart right now, fourth striker on the depth chart. They can't offer much more than that. Because you're not going to be like, all right, come slot in before Kyle Aaron and Jonathan David, the two top all-time scorers for Canada, playing top five leagues, are scoring for fun. You know, E.K. Ubo looks Cavalier at decent levels and, you know, et cetera. Like it's hard to say come slot in. And I think because of that, 
if you're if you're Coley Ocean, you have your options open or Jebison, why would you commit yourself long? Because again, we have to remember, like especially tournaments like the Gold Cup, that's a commitment. That's career. That's that's like you know that's tied, done and dusted, signed, sealed, delivered. That's a big commitment. Be like, all right, you're gonna come to a national team where right now you're the fifth striker uh, in the pecking order. And of course, you can say all oh, the similar for you if he goes to England or otherwise. Fair enough. But why tie yourself to a decision if you're not rushing? Like you're not sitting here being like, oh, a national team tomorrow is offering me a chance to to start. And again, for for Canada, what we have to remember with a lot of these is it's window shopping opportunities just aren't there, right? Like for for them, they come this Gold Cup, they're cap tied. Kolyosha is playing in a Euros where yeah, he's provisionally capped out as a youth player, but he can still follow that switch. He's also, he's gotten a taste of the Canada camp. He's had a bit of that window sh- uh, shopping before, so that when it comes down to it, he can make a decision. And we've seen it with Jebison, where the option's there to play with the England team at the, uh, go to a World Cup, playing at a U20 World Cup with your country. Then um, yeah, go for it. It's a free chance. He's still, he's not tied to, to England. So I think it's, we have to remember sometimes there's this uh, thing between opportunity and, um, also uh, what, where those players are at. And I think, again, it's been a while since there's been a dual national uh, where there's a clear need to be like, all right, come to Canada. I mean, other other than the guy like Aiden Morris, we keep talking about the midfielders, but obviously he wasn't interested in Canada, so that one was quickly uh, thrown out the window. So ultimately, until one of those guys in Europe pops off and you're sitting there like, okay, this is a can't miss, like get him in. And, uh, of course, uh, if that happens, the player himself also has to accept. And I think we're kind of been in this weird gray zone with a lot of these guys where they have no reason to accept. I don't, I'm don't. i not sitting there faulting a guy like Coley Osho for not committing. And Canada's also not in a position to offer them much more uh, than what they have. Yeah, we've said it time and time again. Canada doesn't have youth camps for these guys to start forging connections with the national team, with the programs, with some of the players that make it up. Canada doesn't have much financial kickback for these players if they want to commit to play for Canada. They're not going to get much money, if any at all. Um, you can be rest assured that if Colioso commits to Italy and is playing for Italy or any of the other countries that he's eligible for, um, he's not going to be flying economy overseas. Um, it's just simple facts that Canada soccer is hamstrung by, right? So that affects every level of the organization. Um they're not filing for bankruptcy, even though that that was bandied about last week and a whole bunch of reports on that. Um, and then Jason DeBoss backtracking his words. But Canada just doesn't have a lot to offer outside of, hey, do you want to come play in CONCACAF Gold Cup? Do you want to come play in some potentially cool friendlies? But even those, we struggle to book. And like, do you want to play in the World Cup in 2026? So there's not much Canada can offer other than you get to play with Davies. I guess like there's just not much there that Canada can offer. So yeah, I don't blame these guys for not necessarily wanting to commit to Canada at this point. Um, as well, you get these cool experiences with, with the, the youth tournaments. You get to go to a World Cup. You get to go to a Euro. These things are put on just as big as any other tournament. Um, and so those are cool experiences for these players. Um at the same time, you've had Canadians that have represented other countries. At the U20 World Cup in Canada, there was a young buck, Stephen Vittoria, playing for Portugal. And he there's some great photos, if you look him up on like Jetty Images or anything, um, of Stephen Vittoria playing at the Olympic Stadium in Montreal for Portugal. And uh, I don't know whether it's the hair gel or something, but he looks a lot more Portuguese than that. Um, but we'll continue on in your questions uh, from Canavent Bible. Do you guys know if any MLS players have had any European clubs after them recently? 
I mean, great question. I mean, haven't really seen or heard much. It's been a bit of a quiet, uh, you know, bit of few weeks on that that front. I'd say for 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 MLS players. So we'll we'll see, right? The summer transfer window just opened. It's been a really quiet start, really. Actually, I'd say across the board. Um, you know, especially for example, the striker market we've seen with Jonathan David. It's kind of been a standstill for a few, for. A, you know, there's Harry Kane to, to Bayern, but even that slowed down. So ultimately, to answer the, the original question about MLS players, I haven't heard anything myself. I'm obviously keeping an eye out. And I think for a lot of them also, it will probably see a lot more movement in later July, early August. I think we see that a lot with, with teams. Because I think, um, you know, a lot of these European teams are going to look at the they, – they might not want to move right away, right? They're kind of going to see how the transfer window crumbles. Maybe they, they lose end up losing a guy and they need a replacement or – you know, maybe one of their first targets fall through and then all of a sudden these guys start to, to you know, step up as potential options. So we'll, we'll keep posted, of course, if there's anything out there uh, we hear or see, we'll, we'll make sure to, to share. But yeah, but very quiet on that, that front. And lastly, from On The Rise FC, how important is it for Theo Corbinu to start off well at Grasshoppers? Is it also a good spot for him to go? I think it's a great landing spot. I think it's one where after kind of mucking it about in the English pyramid and, you know, giving Germany a go, the Swiss league is a very good developmental league. Like how many players have come through that Swiss league clubs like Basel, uh, you know, Lucerne, Zurich, young boys, etc. cetera. Um, lots of great clubs there. So grasshoppers as well is known as a developmental spot. Also what I found a bit of an interesting bit of news that I didn't think was picked up as much on was, Grasshoppers actually has a partnership with Wolf. So uh, they've sent players there in the past. So there's actually more of a like tangible chance for him to go play develop. They're used to working with Wolves players, developing them to either go with Wolves or go elsewhere, or, you know, get sold on uh, to, to, to elsewhere. And I think that's key because as I think the first few loans for Corbiano was real eye-opener. It was a chance to go out and experience playing an EFL League One championship, those are tough leagues. Plus, you're going in there like you're a young guy, 19, 20. A lot of these managers, they want to win. It's something where you, if you're 19 or 18 in the in the championship in uh, League One or 20 as he was, it, it's not easy. I think it was, uh, you know, it was one of those where we knew the talent was there. We saw it. Heck, he, when he got on that hot streak in the championship, he can play at that level. But for, for playing at those clubs it's as much about the competition it's being consistent and those were issues areas where uh you know he saw firsthand and you know maybe struggled with and is continuing to work on now what's great about going to the swiss league is it's a great developmental spot he's going to be able to play he's going to be able to get those minutes get that rhythm and now he can take those lessons he learned in england where it was a grind it was a day-to-day and just you know go out show his talent develop as a player and the swiss league's great for for developing players liam miller saw it. he was in a similar situation where couldn't break through at, at Liverpool, had some loans into the lower divisions of England, went to Switzerland, and he thrived. So I'm, I'm hoping very much for, for something similar from Corbiano because, again, we'll mention it time and time. The talent's there. You just see he needs an opportunity to nurture it, and uh, potentially this could be uh, the, the, the spot out of all of them we've seen him go on loan to. And Canada will take on the U.S. in the quarterfinal of the Gold Cup on Sunday night. It's going to be a challenging game. It's a very different look than we saw a couple weeks ago between Ken and the U.S. It goes from Davies versus Pulisic to Ahmed versus Gressel quite quickly. Um, but when you're looking at that match, how difficult is the U.S. team going to be for Canada and a potential score prediction? Yeah, the U.S. is going to be a big challenge. Uh, they, they're, they look like well-organized despite it being a B-slash-C team. 
They've got, you know, good talent. Jesus Ferreira has been scoring for fun, I guess, although I suppose for Canada, you're, you'll be happy to know that, you know, he seems to, they call him the Pirate of the Caribbean for a reason these days. So Canada is a non-Caribbean country. Uh, we'll, we'll be spared in that regard, one will hope. But no, jokes aside, it's a very good U.S. team. And what's scary for them is that they're very good defensively. Like, you know about the attack. You know they have the potential to score goals. But they've only allowed one goal. And that was against a very good Jamaica team. Um, you know, they, this is a team that defends well. And for a Canada team that's kind of struggling to get offense, it's going to be very tougher for them there on top of having to defend all of their threats. So going to be a tough game i think for what i'd ultimately predict is i think something where the u.s's talent and quality just pulls away it'd be more of like a two nil win for the u.s like nothing too comfortable because it's still a rivalry game these teams play each other close uh, a lot of their results have been close over the last few years but i think the u.s edges it two nil so for canada to have any sort of chance they're gonna have to keep it tight they're gonna have to keep it close and if canada were to win i think it would be a one nil two one sort of game it's not going to be very wide open on either end but i think two nil u.s is what i'd see I think it's going to be one of these dire days to be a Canadian soccer fan, to be honest. I'm thinking 3-0 Canada never really looks like they're a part of the match. Um, various tinkering from Herdman and, and co, but nothing's going to really pay off for Canada. Um, and Canada will bow out of the Gold Cup at the quarterfinal stage. Um, but the Whitecaps will get back uh, Ali Ahmed while Julian Gressel moves on and Various clubs will also get back players. TFC could certainly use Jonathan Osorio at this point with the way things are going there, but also with the way things are going there. I don't know whether Jonathan Osorio is necessarily helping the case. Um, an absolute disaster with TFC. Love Terry. Love Terry Dunfield. Um, disastrous. We'll get into it in a, a bit later, though. <laughs> we, 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 30 for 30 won't do that one justice you're gonna need like a, a whole netflix documentary yeah it's too bad that they didn't have uh what was the the netflix or the amazon series that they were doing for the leafs they could all have been or following along tfc all or nothing yeah or the uh, one they did with like, all the amazon docs and uh, with juventus and arsenal and all or nothing <laughs> oh my goodness that would be all, all, all for none well, all or nothing. I think we we know which one it was. Yeah. Uh, anyways, we'll move on to our Canadian women's national team chat now. Um, they're getting ready for the World Cup. A big contingent of that group is in Australia already. Just as we were recording our podcast, they completed their first intra-squad match. Um, it's hard to tell what's happening at the camp, but looks like it's a good vibe from social media. Yeah, I mean, that, that's one thing this Canadian team was always good for. This, you know, women's national team is very tight-knit, very close. Uh, they, they're always a lot of banter. You hear about the Mario Kart tournaments at the Olympics and, uh, you know, the the games, the endless game, the party. Like, Well, not the parties per se, but, you know, you see the whenever it's a birthday party, for example, they always go all out. They got a good energy and vibe about them. So, you know, it's been, it's been good to see. They're in good spirits despite everything that's kind of gone on off the field especially with the Federation. And that, that's going to be key, right? Because um, ultimately at the end of the day, this women's national team strength is the collective. And if they can, you know, they're bought in, they're on the same page. They've got that good vibe that, that, that will always uh, be a bit, bit of a boost. So hopefully they can keep it up and uh, carry that over on the field. And, uh, you know, obviously we probably won't be able to see their friendly against England, although one can knock on wood and hope they find a way to, to stream it. But uh, hopefully they, they carry those good vibes uh, into their opener against Nigeria. 
Well, I mean, if it's closed doors, I don't imagine that they'll find a way to stream it, especially when both teams are certainly nursing a lot of injuries um, that they might want to keep it a little bit hidden. Uh, speaking of injuries, uh, some news earlier today, Jade Rose ruled out of the World Cup with an injury that she picked up in training, and that's a big hit for the Canadian women's national team. Yeah, that's uh, that's certainly less than ideal for uh, for them just because Jade Rose looked like a potential breakout star, you know, still super young, uh, just 20, or if I'm not mistaken, she's still wild to, to think, if not 21. Uh, versatile. We've seen her at center back. She'll pro- she would have provided cover there, but can also play fullback in midfield. Just so good on the ball, uh, but also has these physical tools. She can run. Uh, she can take. The, she can defend one v one. That's a big loss, and it sucks for her really, just because yeah, this would have been a good chance to break out, potentially secure a move. Because you know she's still playing at Harvard, and something where you start to look at your post college career, and you know she definitely has the potential to make a big step up into a top European team or something of that like so a, a chance like this to showcase her skills uh, would have would have been nice so tough for her and yeah tough for Canada because that's a, a center back option gone and that's someone that given how versatile it is like she is right that's someone who's uh you're losing a lot of cover at key positions yeah and Canada needs that versatility in this world cup when you consider the other injuries that they're going in with you can throw her basically anywhere in the pitch for the most part, like she's not going to offer much in attack, but she can play out wide. She can play in the middle. She can play at center back where she's used to. Um, and you needed that versatility when you're considering just how many injuries this Canadian team has going into the world cup. Every country is dealing with similar injuries, to be honest. Um, but when you're a Canadian team that when healthy can go out and win this thing, um, it's certainly quite the hit and to get another hit just a week out from the tournament is pretty tough. Uh, but a couple moves for the women's national team as well. Mary Yasmin Alidu is on the cusp of cracking the World Cup roster, and she just signed a sweet deal with SL Benfica, ensuring that there's still a Canadian there after a recent move with Chloe Lacasse joining Arsenal, bolstering that English club alongside English star Alessia Russo, who made the move to North London as well. But a question from W Soccer CA. It's hard to tell from vibes and photos only, but what impressions are you getting from the KenWNT camp in Australia? Yeah, I mean, uh, it, it, you know, it was a, like we mentioned off the top, right? It's been fun to see some of the, those videos. I think the favorite one was a pretty cool game, actually. That's something I might take into to notes. Just, uh, you know, I'm always always looking out for, for, for fun games to potentially play at the footy pitch. That one where it was like they had two lines behind like a set of cones and like they, one staff member would flick it, uh, like throw it up and the players would have to head it in and then, uh, after you had it in, you'd go in gold, like on the other side, we've got to see Christine Sinclair show off some pretty good diving chops and, you know, some, some, some pretty good flexibility from, from those players. It was hilarious to see that sort of drill and yeah, just, uh, looks like the vibes are good. Also good to see that Nichelle Prince and Deanne Rose have been involved in training after, uh, you know, their injuries and hopefully, you know, they can crack the, the, the squad. So yeah, I'm just excited to see this team get in action again. It's, uh, you know, obviously it would have been nice to be there just to get a, a, a bit of a look at this up close, you know, and personal. And we're really hoping there's some sort of way to watch the friendly, even if it's on tape delay or even if it's 10 minute highlight, just something, right. Just to, to see how they're looking tactically. But again, the vibe looks like it's there and very curious to see what uh, Bev Priestman ends up, you know, cooking up tactically, right? Like what, cause there's so many questions to answer for me, right? Like I want to see Grosso and Fleming play as dual eights in front of Quinn Christine Sinclair playing a midfield role as as she does for Thorns. Might we see a bit more of that? 
who starts up front, right? Obviously, Jordan Hodemann camp has the edge, but could we, you know, what, what about Evelyn Vien who can't stop scoring? Do we see Hoytema Viennes maybe get a bit of a look together? Who are the starting wingers with all the injuries? Um, I think we know Buchanan and Gilles are going to probably start at the back if healthy, but who are the fullbacks? Like, we have so many questions to, to see answered. Uh, so we'll, we'll keep an eye on that. But the vibes look good, and that's always a good starting place. And another move that I forgot to mention, Ashley Lawrence makes the shift over to London as well, joining Chelsea as well as Jesse Fleming and Kadeshi Buchanan. But when you're looking at this Canadian women's national team, if there's a player that necess- hasn't necessarily done well at a tournament, yet or Sean as a star at a tournament yet who could potentially do that here with the roster that they're sending uh, or the likely roster that they're sending who do you pick for that I would say you can still qualify Julia Grosso because she yes she scored the uh, gold medal winning penalty kick but she still wasn't a complete facet of that national team that went on to win the gold medal and I think this is her tournament to really take by the scruff of the neck and kind of run this Canadian national team considering the season she had at Juventus yeah I think that's a great choice right like she started some games surprisingly at the Olympics but proved that her level there and has only proven it since so Gross is a great one for me the one I'm going for is Vanessa Gilles because I think it's important to remember with her this is her first world cup she wasn't there in 2019 she really only burst on the scene in 2020 um, was there at the Olympics and obviously played a huge role. I think Gilles is going to be enormous as well because Canada, I think, as we know, is only going to go as far as they're defending, especially if they make it out the group. That's the beauty of knockout tournament tournament soccer. If you're good defensively, you always have a chance. Um, so for Canada, that's going to be a lot of pressure on Gilles and Buchanan. And I think uh, for if Gilles can shine in this training environment, or not training, this tournament environment, pardon me, as she did at the Olympics, that would be enormous, right? We have to remember this is a player who just re-signed a new loan at Lyon. She's playing for one of, if not the top club in the world, had a great season there. Uh, Gilles is someone who uh, could could step up, and the fact that Canada is able to look back there and have Buchanan and Gilles, it, it, it's, it cannot be taken for granted. So I'm excited to see how uh, Gilles does in her first tournament, our first World Cup tournament. And taking a look at Canada's World Cup group stage opponents, Ireland were chounced 3-0 by France in a friendly with Arsenal midfielder Katie McCabe having to leave the match due to an injury. So hopefully nothing serious there for her, but certainly makes that match potentially a little bit easier for Canada if she's carrying a knock. Irish head coach Vera Powell was the subject of the latest investigation by The Athletic, allegedly having created a culture of fear during her time with the NWSL's Houston Dash. And several women's national teams, of course, including Canada, are at odds with their federations over cash and treatment, including South Africa, who were forced to play a 13-year-old and a random group of players in a pre-World Cup friendly against Botswana this week. And Nigeria might be boycotting their first match. Uh, Just an excerpt from an article here. It was learned that shortly before the Nigerian contingent departed Abuja, Australia on July 2nd, Sanusi during a meeting with players told them that they would not be paid the match bonuses by the Federation since FIFA had already announced that every player would get $30,000 in the group stage for the tournament in Australia and New Zealand. There is so much to dissect going into this World Cup. It's not just on the pitch with the injuries um, where there's so many injuries because women's football is not caught up on the medical side and how to properly take care of athletes um there's scandals there's financial implications it's a mess and it's unfortunate to see this being sort of 
drawing attention away from the actual tournament and bracket challenges and sticker books and all, all of that stuff that we get in the men's tournament. Yeah, it feels like a real watershed uh, moment for the, the women's game because we've seen just phenomenal growth on the club side, right? Like we've just seen the growth of the Champions League into a, you know, a proper, proper top-tier tournament. The crowds, the level, just everything. And then you see at the club as well, the league, the standard just continues to improve, right? And I think this is huge because the World Cup has kind of always been the marquee tournament for women's, uh, you know, in women's football. And it's something where with the club game really catching up to it now it's almost like it always felt like the club game was always having to catch up to the world cup and now it feels like vice versa so this is going to be huge because this is a marquee tournament this should be a tournament that put places a, a spotlight on a lot of these players shows off what they're able to do and you know i think it's good that also this tournament is, is, is its platform its size is showing that uh, exposing a lot of the inequalities and, and, and problems that also need to be solved like uh, injuries and uh, you know, treatment of players uh, by by federations and, you know, prize money was also a big topic that we, uh, you know, that we've seen over the last few years. And it's something where the yeah, they improved, but it's still a lot of work to, to be done there. So I think it's it's good to see these things brought to light. But ultimately, uh, it shows some of the work that has to be done because, yeah, at the end of the day, this is a World Cup. Like This is this is a marquee competition and it should be uh, reflected as such. And it, that's why it's unfortunate to hear these sorts of stories or like the one out of Jamaica where they've, they've got to go fund me just to get up to the world cup. Like these are top national teams. They should not be having to deal with this. And it shows some of the work there that still needs to, to be done. Go fund me's for national teams. Seems like Canada uh, might have a spot in that soon. There was a, a go fund me circulating to book some friendlies for the Canadian women's national team. Hopefully they're in a, at least a little better straits than that. Uh, but more notes on the women's world cup FIFA, bears the possibility of wearing the Pride One Love armbands uh, as FIFA and the NHL continue their little romance on hating against um, people just being themselves and being them, their true selves. Good to see MLS teams, uh, including the Whitecaps, uh, really welcoming that community. And I would love to see it in the NHL and with FIFA, but it just doesn't seem like it's happening. Um, FIFA will allow First Nations flags to fly at stadiums, including the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander flags at all matches in Australia, while the Maori flag will be flown at games in New Zealand. Canada kicks off their tournament on July 20 at MLS Vibes time, 7.30 p.m. Pacific, 10.30 p.m. Eastern time, playing Nigeria on TSN. If Nigeria will play that game, I assume they will. Hopefully, like it would be a real shame if Nigeria doesn't. So they got a good team, and you know you feel bad for uh, for for the players in that regard. So hopefully, they should, should be a good game. We saw it when Canada and Nigeria met; they're the two teams that matched up well, and uh, would be a nice test for Canada to start that tournament and again bring it on. It's great for us in the West Coast. A little seven thirty kick because uh, doesn't get much prettier after that. You're getting what three a.m., five a.m., one a.m. kicks. Like it's going to be a uh, for, for those who like sleep, it's going to suck. For those who love soccer, it's going to be great. And uh, good thing we got a bit of a taste of that at the Tokyo Olympics, right? Like time zone similar-ish to Australia. This one is just going to be a bit more chaotic. But also there's, you know, for us in the West Coast, it's going to be nice to have that option of 7.30 kicks for, for some of these other games to tie, kind of tuck into at night. Like, okay, instead of having to wake up early like you did for the, the Qatar World Cup, right? <laughs> where you're waking up at 2 two what is it, 2 a.m. Pacific, 5 a.m. Eastern just for the earliest game. But anyways. <laughs> I remember on the Olympics, both Tokyo and Beijing, I was working full-time on those games. And so it, 
every day was like my sleep schedule was just on a completely different planet. And my day was effectively like 8 p.m. to noon and then I'd sleep. It was I felt so disconnected, even though I was living in downtown Toronto, I felt so disconnected from everything else. So it was a little bit of a weird feeling. Canada's game against the Republic of Ireland is at 5 a.m. Pacific time. Canada against Australia to finish the group stage is at 3 a.m. Pacific time, of course, Eastern time three hours ahead of that. But moving over into a quick prediction, who's going to win the World Cup? We'll have a World Cup preview episode, but if you had to pick right now, who's your favorite to win the World Cup? In no hesitation, I'm going with the U.S. still. Yeah, I'm going with the U.S. just because I, I want to say a lot of these European teams, but so many of them have suffered key injuries or you know are battling their federation like Spain, who would have easily been a, a favorite if they were full strength. So... I think the U.S. for the most part has a full strength team. They're the defending champions. Uh, I think if I'm bet, if I'm putting money, I'd say uh, the U.S. Although I could also throw a bit of money at in England, but I'm, I'd I'd go U.S. Yeah, I think the the only thing necessarily holding the U.S. back is Vladko Andonovsky. I I don't think he's a very good coach, and I think the team can play at a much higher level than they they currently do with that group of players. Um, but they still have the potential to win a World Cup. They've got some of the best players in the world, and they have done that before most of them and they also rise to the level i think that's also key uh, i think with Annovsky, the big thing is they haven't been like before you know they they, they would kind of run over uh, opponents right like now they don't really run over opponents as much but also as they've shown in big games they do they can uh, can step up certainly they've stepped up against canada the last few times they've, they've played them so i imagine they'll rise to the level right that's what world cup champions do and uh should be fascinating to see if they can uh, they can continue their their dominance and get that coveted three p. And getting into a few quick league hits uh, in the domestic game, the HFX Wanderers have picked up pace under head coach Patrice Geyser, picking up three wins and a draw in their last four matches. We're recording this on Friday morning, and they visit a struggling Vancouver FC tonight in Langley. On that note, Vancouver FC continues to struggle through their inaugural campaign, despite Sean Hundal getting up to six goals. They traded for Mickey Kantov with Cavalry FC, sending Mile Henri the other way, and also a big move for Vancouver FC on the horizon as well. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, reports out of Norway uh, suggest that Alejandro Diaz, the, uh, the 2022 Golden Boot winner himself, left Pacific halfway through the year to go to Norway with Sogn Nadal in a record transfer. And it hasn't worked out as well as he would have liked so far. He started out well, scored six goals uh, last year in the half season, but they missed out on the playoffs by three points didn't get promoted at all. And so far this year, he has no goals in around 400 minutes as he struggled to just get playing time. So it looks like both parties, I mean, Sognadal announced it. So at this point, if it doesn't go through, it'd be a big surprise. But Sognadal announced that would be a one-year loan for, for Diaz. Uh, you know, we'll see if it gets made permanent after or what happens in that regard. But a one-year loan for Diaz. Vancouver needs goals. Hundal has six of their 11 goals. Diaz is third all-time with 26 goals in the CPL. So he's someone who's proven he can put them away. And yeah, it will be a bit of a big coup for, for a Vancouver team that, that needs goals and a bit of a you know chance for Diaz to hit the reset button. So such a fascinating move. I mean, that attack of Vancouver suddenly gets really scary with Sean Hundal banging in the goals. And then you add Alejandro Diaz to that mix. And I mean there might not be a better sort of attacking group than that, um, even though there could be some potential departures from Vancouver FC. 
yeah, I think it's it's going to be a fascinating offseason over there. Let's just say the least, right? They're, uh, you know, they're they're happy with some of the the signings that they made and they've done well. But Afshin Gutby is he keeps promising it. He's like, I I have moves to make, and you know, I think the fact that these so far Kentabe and Diaz being the first two moves shows they're not messing around in that uh, department. And obviously, they got rid of Emmanuel Robe, uh, international striker, opening up space you know, for, for new arrivals. So going to be fascinating to see what they can do because they've got some fascinating pieces, especially now with these new acquisitions. And we have to remember too, Caden Chung will get back healthy. This could be a whole new team in the, in the second half of the season. It could make things interesting because just they're six points out of a playoff spot. They play everyone in the league twice. They are far from out of the race and it could be a thrilling end to, to, to the CPL season. If Vancouver steps up, because we've seen Ottawa make some big signings of their own. Halifax looking great. Valor's, you know, always gonna gonna be a threat. Like it could be a very fun end to the CPL season. Well, it's too bad for Vancouver FC that they are not sticking with the uh, Clausura Apertura schedule that they had in the the first CPL season because they could certainly heat up and and I mean in a miracle world win the second half of the season, right? Um, but not the case this year, but they're certainly within the mix to make the playoffs. Over on Vancouver Island, James Merriman signed a multi-year contract with Pacific FC after having led them to over two points per game throughout his tenure. He's been absolutely dominant as a head coach in the CPL. But moving over to MLS as well, TFC might have Terry Dunfield at the helm, but things have not improved for them in MLS play. And now Federico Bernadeschi is headbutting people, but not playing like Zidane in many other ways. Yeah, tough time to to watch Toronto FC just struggling to, to get any sort of wins or consistency. I mean, their lineup is absolutely, you know, decimated with international absences, injuries, suspension. Like, all three of their DPs could be out for their next game. Uh, they're already, you know, shorthanded across the board. Uh, it is it's just a tough time for, for TFC as, you know, their roster build uh, is under scrutiny. They're going to have to refresh things there. They're gonna, looking for a new head coach. Um, going to be very fascinating to see uh, where they go from this. They did release a pretty slick-looking Caribbean kit, their sixth kit of the season, bringing them to more kits than wins on this season. Uh, but a little bit of a funny fact uh, found by FTF Canada on Twitter, uh, or I think I might have even seen it on threads. Uh, but CF Montreal have now scored just once in three games after a 4-0 win against Minnesota and Dane Sinclair. But they brought in some reinforcements, adding Quadwo Opoku from LAFC in a pretty big uh, general allocation money deal. Very good signing from, from Montreal, albeit a hefty one. It's not the cheapest, but Opoku is a fascinating player. He's only 21. He always looks so good. Uh, whenever I've had a chance to see LAFC, certainly he's had a, a bit of a history of torturing the Whitecaps a bit. So that obviously doesn't, uh, you know, of course. So we've seen a, a lot of the best of him, but even in other viewings I've had of LAFC, uh, he's always been a very uh, fun player to watch. Uh, I remember last year when I actually went to an LAFC game in LA versus DC United. He was one of the players of the match, uh, or he was the player of the match in that, in that game, if I'm not mistaken. Like, he was just fantastic. He's quick and run at guys. Is, is good 1v1. And I think Montreal needs a bit of that because as we've seen up front, they've got a lot of strikers. My goodness, they have a lot of strikers uh, between the likes of Mason Toy and Zanussi Ibrahim. Uh, he had in some of the uh, the, the other names they, they've got there as well, Chinoso a four. But they've kind of lacked a bit of a guy who could take guys on 1v1 and be a bit of a destabilizer. Ariel Laster was sort of supposed to do that, but he ended up being more useful as a wing back. So someone who can bring a bit of that different look to the attack underneath the strikers 
uh, is huge. And uh, for Montreal, obviously, they'll have to hope that Opoku's success in LA didn't come from as much, you know, just the talent around him. But I think the fact that he was able to win his spot as a pretty consistent starter over the last year and a half on such a deep team shows his his talent. And uh, Montreal's making a big bet. And you know what? This is a bet they have to make, right? Because it was, uh, you know, pointed out, like, my goodness, where did, uh, you know, it's a hefty trade for Montreal, but they got a lot of jam off of selling Mihailovic, Kone, and Johnston. And, uh, you know, this is just uh, just those three alone, because usually you can claim around $1 million of jam for, for outgoing transfers. This is only it represents half of that, so may as well make a punt on a, a player with potential like an Apuku. And the Vancouver Whitecaps holding on to the ninth and final playoff spot in the West. Still weird to say ninth and final because it just seems like so many playoff teams. Uh, but they're still chugging along. They take on the Seattle Sounders in almost a repeat of a derby match last month. It's a bit weird to take on the Seattle Sounders so quickly at home again. Uh, but the Vancouver Whitecaps... Um, there's not much happening with them other than playing games and seemingly picking up points along the way. Yeah, it's it's been a bit of a weird one. They continue to play well. They're you know generating chances just defensively. They you know continue to be very inconsistent and on the road even more inconsistent. So, I mean, the mission's clear for them. I think it, it's just to start converting those chances to defend tighter and get wins on the road, and they'll be in a good position in the second half with how open the West is. I think it's something where. Uh, Everything is indicating that the Whitecaps should be good this year. Well, they just got to start get, turning a lot of those good performances into results. Really, that's the biggest thing. And we won't spend too much time on this, but it has been a little while since we checked in on League One Canada. Uh, the TSS Rovers and the Victoria Highlanders are tied atop the League One BC men's division as we enter the final month of the season. The Canadian Championship goes to the best regular season side, so certainly some driving forces to win that title. Not Smart FC lead the Women's League One BC regular season title race, but the Whitecaps Academy is right behind them by just a single point, but they're going to be losing some players to colleges that have been key players for them over the last couple of years. You've seen a lot of League One BC this year. I'll be making my way out to Not Smart versus TSS Rovers on Saturday. Hope to see some listeners there as well, but just initial thoughts on uh, the title races in League One BC. Yeah, I mean it's uh, it's been come it's going to come down to the wire on the women's side. Uh, I mean, not not some lot. Whitecaps, they seem like it seems like it's going to come down to those two. So it's going to very fascinating to see uh, them. Just they're so talented. I got a chance to see both of them play each other in the women's division. Just phenomenal game end to end lead changes, and that was what the Whitecaps missing some of their top youth Canadian you know uh, internationals who were just coming off international duty and got a rest. Uh, so it should come down right to the wire. Uh, on there, and it'll be fascinating to see who ends up representing um, BC in the, the the League One Canada Championships. Although there could be two BC representatives, and if it ends up being both of them, I'm sure people wouldn't complain because that would be fun to watch. And on the men's side, yeah, similar deal. Like, right, obviously, in the regular season, the big uh, allure uh, beyond the Wanda Fuka plate is also the Canadian Championship berth on the men's side. And right now, it looks like that's going to come down to. Rovers versus Highlanders. They play each other on the last game of the season, which is going to be absolutely must-watch stuff if this keeps up. Highlanders have been just... They've been a gritty find-away team. It's been fun to, to watch their perseverance, their resilience. I got to see it firsthand in their opening game against the Whitecaps. They ground out a, a late uh, result in that one. They've kind of just kept that up, and their goal difference isn't... You know, it's it's they're, they're not blowing teams out, but they're getting a job done, and you can admire that. But on the other side, the Rovers have been... Uh, They've kind of been a, a machine just heating up. They had the Canadian Championship 
got a bit of a hangover off that. But as soon as they heated up, it was four nils, three nils, five nils, just putting the, the sword to teams. And it'll be fascinating to see if it does come down to that last game. Can that high octane Rovers offense be enough to, to overcome a stingy Highlanders team that gets the results? Either way, that's pretty awesome to see that battle. And man, I'm just imagining more Canadian championship games at either of those grounds, either out in Victoria with the Highlanders over at UVic or at Swangard with the Rovers. It's a win-win, right, for, for the Canadian championship perspective. And over in League One, Ontario, Von Azuri have a slight lead in front of NDC Ontario for the top of the Women's Premier Division, while the Oakville Blue Devils and Scorscopy FC sit tied atop the Men's Division. Uh, a little bit harder to follow League One, Ontario, with both of us sitting in BC. Tried to get out to a match when I was out for the Guadeloupe game, but timing just didn't work out. Uh, thoughts on the League One, Ontario season so far? Yeah, it should be uh, fascinating to see how it comes down the wire, especially with this, uh, you know, promotion relegation to come in. So as the hashtag they've sh widely shared says, that every point matters, right? Because they're doing it based on aggregated points per game. So I think there's going to be bring a lot to play for across the board because, yeah, at the top, uh, you know, the, you know, the teams like Vaughn uh, you know, on the women's side and, you know, even Swell Vaughn on the men's side, always a threat with the talent they have. Uh, you, you know, these teams are going to push for, for the title. But I think the fact that this relegation um, is impending, uh, it makes it's just going to bring it down to the wire. And then from that point on, it's going to be fascinating to see how Pro Rel takes form in Ontario. So a lot, lots to watch for there and uh, fascinating to see. Because that's how Pro Rel works there. It could be a bit of a blueprint for what maybe, maybe what ends up happening in the CPL, right? So, of course, you can only follow that with uh, close attention. And the Von Azuri also got the opportunity to train with the Canadian men's national team when they were in Toronto preparing for the Gold Cup. Uh, certainly a nice opportunity there. Sometimes we see Alliance United with their U of T connections and head coach Ilya Orlov get those opportunities, but certainly uh, a big opportunity for Von Azuri to play with some of Canada's best. Uh, an interesting thing to me is when you look at League One BC and League One Ontario on the women's side, Catalan Tolney leads the goal scoring for League One BC with 10 goals in seven matches. And Jada Thompson with Woodbridge Strikers has 14 goals in 10 games, leading the scoring for League One Ontario. They're both playing with the UBC Thunderbirds. Tolney is back with the Thunderbirds this season in Canada West and U Sports. And Thompson had a few good showings with the Thunderbirds last season. And then this year, she's expected to really lead the line with Danielle Steer no longer with the UBC Thunderbirds. U Sports coverage going to be coming up uh, soon, but not quite yet. Just a little bit intriguing. In Quebec, Royal Beauport lead the men's division by just a single point ahead of CS Saint Laurent. While Programme Excellence Feminine de Soccer Quebec lead the women's race. That's the NDC Ontario or Whitecaps equivalent for Quebec. And in the Alberta Exhibition Series, the Calgary Foothills lead on the men's side, while St. Albert Impact hold the top spot for the women. I think we've touched on basically everything in Canadian soccer today. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. A big week of Canadian men's national team, women's national team, League One coming up, MLS, CPL. Get out to your local games. Uh, but I think that's all we've got for today's podcast. Yeah, have uh... This was certainly a, an episode of Northern Football, right? We put the Northern in Northern Football. So hopefully everyone enjoyed. Uh, we're uh, certainly trying our best to, to, to get as much coverage of the, the local game up here. Uh, you know, it's been busy with the national teams, of course. They've kind of uh, dominated the attention. But it's a good reminder that there's a lot of good local soccer in your backyards these days, uh, you know, from the League One levels 
uh, to CPL. So if you're able ever to, to go check it out, it's usually a good time and uh, you can see the, the players of the future and that's always uh, super exciting. So certainly I've, I've had no complaints about it, been able to get out to a lot of these local games. So hopefully you've uh, been able to enjoy this as well. That's all we've got for episode 129 of the Northern Football Podcast. I've been Ben Steiner. He's been Alex Gongi-Ruzik. Make sure to follow both of us on Threads and Twitter. On Threads, you already know our Twitters. On Threads, we're at AGR on the case and at any underscore Steins. Thanks so much for listening. Leave a rate for your review, and we'll be back next time.